Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to take a moment to highlight someone you'll be hearing from later, Paris Bowens. Earlier this year, Paris passed away. He was a keyboardist, songwriter, and producer here in Philadelphia. Paris was instrumental in shaping the sound that Philadelphia came to be known for in the early 2000s. When I reached out to him about incorporating him in the series, he responded without hesitation and asked how he could help. And though I didn't have a personally long history with him, in my few interactions, he was warm, welcoming, and immensely generous. So I'd like to dedicate this episode to him, his wife, his children, and his entire family. James Poyser is credited for anything from D'Angelo to Jill to um, um, Erica Badu. You know, some of the dopest chord progressions you could think of in any kind of soul music, also called Neo Soul, James Poyser. Give him the credit. You know, Miseducation, Martin Hill, James Poyser. And who is James Poyser to me? He's the guy I met at choir rehearsals. So everything rolls right back into church. And I don't want to run this whole podcast another direction. But if you think about it, real love for Mary J. Blige is churchy. You can play that at an offering time in church. Like, let us all stand, face the wall, turn to the rear, you know, from the rear, come around to the table. You can go. And everybody's marching around the table. Real love, oh yeah, yeah, come on Jesus, I'm searching for a real, oh yes, Lord. (laughs) By the year 2000, the movement had a name, but it wasn't a name any of the artists agreed on or invented themselves, and it brought a sometimes burdensome weight that they didn't ask for. Now, it could be the fascination with categorization and naming things, or the desire to commodify things and sounds and people, or maybe a little bit of both. But where did the name Neo Soul come from? And more importantly, what are the origins of the sound often associated with the name? In this episode, we'll pay close attention to these questions and consider the meaning of a name and the significance of a sound. I'm your host, Stanley Collins, and this is The Seeds of Black Lily, an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and black music at the turn of the century. The idea of a soul music that refers back to or harkens back to a different time is not necessarily this new idea. That's Dr. Philip Lamar Cunningham. He's a professor of media studies at Wake Forest University. In 2010, he published an article entitled, There's Nothing Really New Under the Sun, The Fallacy of the Neo-Soul Genre, an incredible piece that tracks the origins of the name Neo-Soul, why it became a point of controversy for the artist was attached to, and much more. Um, in the article, for example, I highlight how um, Nelson George, 
um, whose 1988 book, The Death of Rhythm and Blues, introduces sort of this concept of sort of, hey, here's this soul music that harkens back to the way it used to be. And in part, you know, his book emerges out of what sort of has become, or at that period of time, had been um, musings about the death of R&B um, in general. And so he, you know, sort of says, well, listen, part of the problem is, is you have this music now that just isn't really good. The artistry is lacking. And uh, so you, you get that. But the term itself, Neo Soul, we see really appear as early as 1987. Um, there was a Washington Post article in which someone refers to the Force MDs, uh, you know, a group of former rappers at, who turned singers as sort of Neo Soul. Uh, we see the term neo soul applied to you know a lot of the British artists who emerged in the 1990s, the brand new heavies, uh, the influence, Jamiroquai, Omar, and even Seal. But what we've come to think of as uh, neo soul really comes into place when uh, Kedar Massenberg, who um, at the time was an executive producer, later Motown head, discovers D'Angelo and Erica Badu and basically uses that term to sort of qualify their sound. And it sort of seemed to be a necessity at that time, primarily because, you know, in the early 1990s, most of the R&B that we heard was really beginning to be lumped in with hip hop in general, right? We have to think about who's ruling the airways at that time. It's groups like Jodeci, it's um, artists like Mary J. Blige who were, you know, bringing in these new forms of, um, you know, advancing the tradition from New Jack Swing into sort of this hip hop infused um, R&B, which caused a lot of angst, right? Because then you begin to see things that we took for granted with R&B begin to erode. Like you can't really name an R&B band today. They start dying on the, the vine at that time. You can't name too many R&B groups today. They start dying on the vine at that time. And so Neo Soul becomes a way of qualifying, hey, here's this music that sounds like the classic stuff that you used to like. And as you rightly note, um, most of the people who are being labeled R&B literally hate the term. And, you know, I think it's not that surprising that they would hate this term because, let's be frank, very few artists like to be compartmentalized. Very few artists, you know, want to see themselves as any one thing. They want to be free to explore um, sonically. And so, you know, painting them into a corner with a label um, unfortunately limits their ability to do such. You know, I use a quote from um, Amiri Baraka in my piece about the blues, right? And that the blues are always responsive to uh, the new environment, you know, that they, it, that's just how the blues have always been. And I just think that what we're seeing with Neo Soul um, is the continuance of the blues, right? And, or as Nicholas Payton would suggest, right, the Black American musical tradition, right? The idea that, you know, you're not seeing these stops and starts, you're seeing just continuance, right? You're seeing links with the past, um, overlaps, um, reinventions, new inventions, right? Uh, responses to technology responses to shifting aesthetics um but again the heart of it is you know still the blues and i and i still you know wholeheartedly believe this in an interview with jet magazine in 2000 india Ari was asked about how she categorized her music in response to that question she said what i do is a continuation not a throwback to old soul music 
I just call it soul music and also healing music. I think certain instruments and sounds corresponds to certain parts of your body and energy center. That's what those chills are when you hear something you like. At the heart of what India Irie is pointing to is the spirituality, the connectedness across time that's present in her music and the long history of black music traditions. It's the emotional core of what we find in the spirituals, the blues and gospel. In particular, when looking at the prominence of Philadelphia during the late 90s and early 2000s, we find a common thread, a connection to the church at nearly every turn, from artists to producers to session musicians, all of which culminated in making a sound unique to Philadelphia. To learn more about that Philadelphia sound, I reached out to Paris Bowens. He's an artist, pianist, and producer from Philadelphia. And in the late 1990s and early 2000s, he played with Ty Tribbett and Greater Anointing and his backing band, Soundcheck, where he would help facilitate a new era and sound in contemporary gospel music, melding what some began calling neo-soul with more traditional forms of gospel music. Paris has produced, written, or played with everyone from Vivian Green, Music Soul Child, and Flowetry, to Marvin Sapp and Israel Holton. For the sound of contemporary Philadelphia, he's an architect. So what's up everybody? Paris Bones back here again. This is another Colors episode. I wanted to do something special because, because I come from the city of Philadelphia, I wanted to kind of share my journey a little bit and I want to show you guys how to play the Philly way. I played on a couple Philly records, some, some of your artists like Music Soul Child, Flower Tree, um, Vivian Green, uh, Glenn, Glenn Lewis. Here's how we would do things. Almost churchy like, and a lot of us came from church. changes but that's a lot of Philly neo soul for real for real it's got to have a little bit of a you know and I study bass players is demonstrating is the foundation of what would become known as neo-soul, the sound, its sonic extension from the church to the club to the radio. 
And though Neil's soul is not specific to Philadelphia, Philadelphia has played a vital role in developing its sound. And the city's history made it a prime location for such a moment to take shape. A history that goes back more than a century. Before Philadelphia was known for its chart-topping rhythm and blues and disco of the 70s and neo-soul of the early 2000s, it was a city deeply connected to and rooted in gospel music, producing some of the most influential and commercially prominent artists in the early days of the genre. In large part, Philadelphia's prominence in gospel music during the 20th century is tied to its infrastructure of independent black churches. An infrastructure that dates back to the late 1700s with organizations like the Free African Society, the founding of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and other independent black churches, as well as the mass migration of black folks to the city beginning in the 1910s. During that time, World War I was raging on in Europe, Philadelphia, like many northern cities, faced a combination of a shortage of workers and a high demand for labor, primarily in its factories. Simultaneously, hundreds of thousands of black folks began looking for life elsewhere in hopes of escaping the brutal realities of Jim Crow and seeking some semblance of economic stability, the right to vote, a desire to be seen as fully human. And by 1920, Philadelphia's black population soared to 134,000, then to 219,000 by 1930, half of which were from states like Virginia, North and South Carolina, Maryland, and Georgia. And with such a large influx of newcomers, many of the city's black churches grew as well. Take someone like Reverend Charles Albert Tinley, who moved to Philadelphia from Maryland following the Civil War. Reverend Tinley was such an integral figure to the Philadelphia community that he was known as the man that welcomed 10,000 strangers. And as is often the case for many black churches, Reverend Tinley saw his church as being more than just a religious community. Reverend Tinley was active in local and national politics, often speaking out for and on behalf of his members. He was instrumental in helping his new members find jobs, get loans, and start their own businesses. But in addition to being such a central figure to the religious and social communities of black folks in the city, he also was considered the first gospel music composer before the genre even had a name, meaning before gospel music was even called gospel music. He was foundational in shaping the sound of what would become known as gospel music. Writing about Charles Tinley's influence on the genre in her groundbreaking book, The Music of Black Americans, A History, Eileen Southern states, when the National Baptist Convention met at Pilgrim Baptist Church of Chicago in 1921, one man, A.W. Nix, electrified the convention with his singing of a song, I Do, Don't You?, composed by Charles Tinley, the gospel songwriter. Thomas Dorsey had never before been so moved by a song, not even a blues. He resolved at that moment to write church music that would affect others in a similar way. His first songs revealed a debt to Tinley, who was active during the years 1901 to 1906, but whose music did not become popular in Negro churches until after World War I." End quote. In part, this is to say, 
Charles Tinley's influence reached far and wide, helping create the structure, the form, and what would become known as gospel music. And it is no shock that the increased popularity in his songs following World War I coincided with the mass migration of black folks, not just to his church, but to northern cities. So given the strong foundation of black churches in Philadelphia, it only makes sense that gospel music would thrive too. This is all to say, when we think about that first wave of migration of black folks to Philadelphia, we see people like Sister Rosetta Tharp, a black queer woman whose style extended from the church to the club in such a way that she was dubbed the godmother of rock and roll, or John Coltrane, who migrated from North Carolina, the Dixie Hummingbirds, who migrated from South Carolina, and groups like the famous Ward Singers, the Davis Sisters, Marion Williams, and countless others who were in that number of people moving to Philadelphia, ultimately laying the foundation for years to come. Philadelphia's legacy of gospel music is deeply ingrained in the music we saw created in the late 90s and early 2000s. There's nearly a direct line extending from the churches in the city for many of the producers, artists, and musicians. To learn more about the sonic and spiritual foundations of the music, I spoke with Keith Pelzer. He's a third generation pastor here in Philadelphia. But before he became a pastor, he was an organist for his dad, a songwriter and record producer in the early 2000s. In particular, Keith was a producer under DJ Jazzy Jeff's production company and studio called A Touch of Jazz, a collection of producers, musicians, and songwriters DJ Jazzy Jeff had come across in music stores around Philadelphia, and people referred to him via word of mouth. The production company was made up of six producers, paired off into groups of two, Keith Pelzer and Darren Henson, Carvin and Ivan, and Dre and Vidal. These producers would intimately work with Jill Scott, Flowetry, Music Soul Child, and Glenn Lewis on their debut albums. And after leaving A Touch of Jazz, these producers went on to work with everyone from Michael Jackson and Lil' Kim to Mariah Carey and Usher. So, the sound rooted in Philadelphia's black churches quite literally made its way around the world. Yes, my name is Keith Isaiah Pelzer, and I am a pastor, a songwriter, a producer, a father of two boys, and a husband of one wife. I started music back at the age of five, or maybe before, just banging on the piano. But I'm a pew baby, so I grew up in church the entire time of my life, and it's the church that I'm pastoring. My grandfather founded the church. He passed in 75. My father took over. He passed in 2008, and now I took over. So for my entire life, I spent every Sunday literally in church, and that's where I got my start in music. From that, when I started uh, playing a lot more and I became the church musician after the older musicians either left or they passed away, I took over and I had a lot of training by ear. 
um, some structural training from settlement school and private teaching. Um, I did learn how to read music, um, but I didn't get super fluent with it. I didn't do uh, recitals and stuff like that. I did enough to learn church music. And from that, not having parents that were um, very um, church introverted, where they wouldn't let me get out and do stuff, I got out into the world and was able to do whatever I wanted to do as long as I was at church on Sunday. And from that, that's how I got into um, hip hop and R&B music. In that hip hop and R&B music, um, I was a Teddy Riley fan. Um, and pretty much, yeah, just a Teddy Riley fan was more of my hip hop. And then I was trying to be a DJ, so I knew a lot of hip hop records. So I took my music talent with all of that, put it together, and um, I just doubled and dabbled in music. So every Saturday, um, mom and dad would play gospel highway 11 so there's a big saturation of church music so not only are you playing church music but you're listening to it all day long on saturday throughout the week is tv shows game shows so there's that you know you know different little tags and hits and bumpers and all that you hear and that helps you to practice chops the leniency that the family had, my mom's side was more of the earth, wind and fire, Motown type listening, you know, Teddy Pendergrass. So you kind of get in that bluesy R&B jazz, but you realize it's kind of like the same as the church music for the most part. Then insert an Andre Crouch when it kind of gets you that direct connection with R&B where you have a song like every knee shall bow, every tongue shall, shall confess and it's like, uh, bow down, bow down, and you think it get on down. So you kind of sing an R&B and hip hop over the same stuff, and over gospel music. And so when you're going to church, your groove part of it, not being saved and young, everybody else shouting, and you like, oh, I'm the DJ up in this church, and they they rocking to what I'm playing. So you're not saved, but you feeling like, look, long as y'all feel good in the spirit, I keep the keep the record spinning. So. Being an organist, I'm a Hammond B3 organist, so being an organist and rocking with your cousin on the drums, in your head, you're doing like a, and before we jump straight into it, you're doing kind of like a Black Lily vibe where people are like kind of a little drunk, maybe high or whatever, or just in a vibe. But in church, they in Jesus, but you kind of like, for me, I'm in neither place. I'm not high, I'm not drunk, and I'm not saved. So I'm just grooving and I'm watching that I'm controlling the room in a sense and so that was pretty much what was going on at that young age and so you just keep going back to it and you're in a zone of listening and more so the young mind at 10 years old for me was into patterns into rhythm into sound and when you're in two different worlds where it's like my mom's side wasn't the sinful side it was just that they weren't the church side but my dad's side was the preacher church you know everything is jesus you know is a bible on the table and everything at grandma's house on my mom's side it was cookouts you know the grill you got budweiser downstairs and the deacon and the pastors upstairs and everything else is like chilling downstairs you know cigarettes whatever you having fun you know you get a little sneaking cussing or whatever everything so you mix all that together and you have 
rhythm of life in a sense you kind of get a stevie wonderish thing so let's not forget stevie wonder in the equation that's a big influence because he was the r&b slash spiritual churchy guy so it's literally all meshing together as one Given his time as a producer and his association with the broader community of musicians, I asked Keith about the connection between gospel music and what people were beginning to call neo-soul, and what it was about the church that made it such a pivotal space for him and others, and about Black Lily as a sacred space. Here's what he had to say. I met James Poison with choirs, 60th and Callahill, Michael Scott, um Kojic choirs James is Jamaican you know they were they had church on Saturdays whatnot you know um we're we're all preachers kids if we're not preachers kids we're children the grandkids of a preacher or, or a nephew or niece or something like that so you have this church circle of people but then you also end up with people that aren't church people but they're like that that neo thing was more so hey I'm Afrocentric so when you get this neo i don't really know like even if you look it up online you get all these different definitions but from our perspective the neo soul movement of philly the church was the five spot so that was the church of neo soul music and then everybody that's in there you may have a conglomerate of people that are from church or they're just vibey people now i don't want to some people will kill me for this but part of it is the spiritual vibe that we had from being church musicians where it's like oh do it unto the lord there was also this like let go be free we ain't trying to be puffy we not trying to be bad boy and all of them we ain't trying to be timberland and them we just in a vibe and everybody comes in here and we just respect one another hear each other out and everybody's expressing themselves and what i do know about it it was a poetry did a lot in there so it's kind of like a preaching element so the speaking needed music to go with the speaking so it's kind of like the musician on the organ when the preacher's preaching and they're just accompanying a word that's coming forth so it was a place of expression in that you basically had a lot of church musicians that were like we knew how to play in every key because in most churches black churches they not singing out of a hymn book they're just taking the words out of the hymn book, but they start in any key they want. So for instance, I learned how to play in school, how to play Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And I think it was either F or B flat in the, in the hymn book. But then I get to church, the deacon just go, Jesus Keep It's like, this dude is in E flat. So you can't, you kind of like playing by ear. So in a five spot, if somebody could sing that's not a church girl or church guy, they just come in, they go, um, um, yeah, um, give me a beat. So now hip hop is done influenced the drummers. So they're giving a funky beat or something. And this is still like new school James Brown type stuff. You know, everybody just grab an instrument and play. So it's that kind of thing that that neo soul movement was. And it was really like most of us were church musicians leaving out of choir rehearsal. But we didn't want to go home because we was bad kids. So we was just like, we want to hang out somewhere. And you come in there and you throw a church chord out to somebody who ain't church. And what they do with it is totally different than what somebody does with it in church. The Neo Soul Movement was in, in the five spot was really like, it, it was really a place where cats were just hanging out. So when you, when you think about a touch of jazz, 
A Touch of Jazz was Jazzy Jeff that has his production company. And the six guys that you normally hear about weren't the first guys in A Touch of Jazz. It was technically Victor Duplay, James Poyser, Craig King. And they did a lot of different records before we showed up. When all of those guys kind of took off and branching, insert me and Vidal, insert Darren Henson, who knows Jeff from somewhere else uh, on a DJing tip. And, and this guy's already done a ton of things himself. Everybody that came in there, we all had something that we were doing before we got there. Everybody had some kind of credibility under their belt. So then it's 12 people and it was like the, the survival of the fittest because it started taking shape where it's like, okay, you got a bunch of guys hanging around Jazzy Jeff. Jazzy Jeff only has two rooms. And if you didn't have a, a setup at your crib, you ain't you needed to come in and try to do something. But then by then it's too late. So we all had this advantage of I got drum machine and stuff at the crib and I'm coming down here and I got access to bigger stuff than I would normally have. And you got people like Will Smith coming through, somebody here, there. And it started to take shape. As it's starting to take shape, we meet the Kenny Lattimore's. We're trying to bring in the church girls that we know. We're just singing demos, cutting records, whatever. And I never forget, we had like 20 songs or something. And our manager at the time took it to LA and we like, oh, we about to blow up. He came back, they was like, this stuff is garbage. <laughs> we was like, whoa, we swore. I mean, we had songs that were dope. And they were like, you know, he was just like, yo, every record company was like, this garbage. So the, the interesting thing was we kept the faith, which we didn't call it faith. We were just like, we kind of got to this thing we called ourselves banshee mode. What that meant was, you know what, dude, we're going to do whatever the heck we want to do. Like, that's it. And and Jeff did encourage us to find our own lane and we found it. So we kind of went back to the drawing board, made a couple of adjustments. But the one thing most people don't talk about, a lot of the records we did at the beginning was like Tia Mintz at the time, uh, a girl, Lisa, um, her name is Lisa Blue Jefferson now. But we had them on the demos, but they're church girls. And I'm not saying that was a problem. I think we had too much church and we, you know, we didn't realize that the world doesn't, if the world wants church, they're going to go to the church. And so we're church musicians that's trying to get out in the world and you don't have to change everything or conform to the world, but there's certain, there's a certain cohesiveness that goes to a level of success. What we were cutting was totally significant, but the success of it was based on an environment where we don't make the rules in it. You know, it's kind of like you throw it out there and it's like, Jazzy Jeff always says something that got me. He said, this is hot, that's dope, that's fat, that's the ish, and that'll sell. Okay, that last part is the part that most people never get it on. That will sell. So now back to the five spot real quick. The issue was everything in the five spot was pretty much dope or you wasn't on stage. If you was garbage, they'll be like, yeah, it ain't working. Like, don't give her the mic next week. And so you had a lot of people that was the bomb in the five spot, but everything in the five spot didn't sell. That's crazy. Like there was musicians that probably could do solos 20 times better than Amir. But you know what? That's the difference between Amir on TV every night and all of the, the albums he played on because he was pocket. You see, so what we did in a music sense 
we pocketed the performances and put it into a package that you can call a record. As a part of A Touch of Jazz, Keith, along with the other writers and producers, were tasked with helping craft the debut albums for Jill Scott, Music Soul Child, Glenn Lewis, and Flowetry. Keith has a bunch of credits across all of these albums, but there's one song that seems to stand out. He Loves Me, Lizelle and E-flat, a song he co-wrote with Jill Scott. So I asked him about how the song came to be. So it's one of those times when your dad is standing there talking and, you know, dad's talking and you're like, all right, so you just start playing music while he's talking. And you say to yourself, hey, I'm, I'm going to loop that when I get to the studio. Because see, at this time, you don't have logic. You don't have the phones, iPhone stuff. It's like, this is way back in the day. This is like late 90s. So you sit there and you play it and you kind of like, you got to hold it in memory or you kind of record it to your little recorder thing. And then, you know, I was the type of guy, I leave church on Sunday and weekends, people who didn't go to church were just hanging out in the studio playing Sega Genesis or whatever. So we're all just hanging out in the studio. Everybody's in and out, like, oh, let's go to South Street, whatever. And Jill's down there, but I played the chords in church and that progression was doom, doom. Now I played it on an organ. Now, mind you, I got my foot pedal. So you're a musician, I'm on that Hammond B3. Well, we had a, um, a, a A100. So I'm, I'm playing it. You know, so I got left hand chord doing solo at the top and my foot's doing, you know, the, the chord progression, you know, playing the bass line to the chord progression. So I took that and it's interesting. I've never I've never heard the song played on an organ with Jill performing it, but that's the origination of it. So when I went to the studio, I just did the same progression with the chords. And then when you program, this is the funny thing. For a musician, there's two type of musicians. Because I had a big influence in, um, I was influenced heavily by DJing and hip hop. I learned the simplicity of it. And because I wasn't that fluid playing music like classical and stuff like that, I was kind of limited and I was more so of a pocket player rather than, oh, he's so dope and, you know, concertish and all of that stuff. And so I, you know, I took it and went to the studio and just minimized it. And you just go, bloom, 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 ding. And that was kind of one of those monster things. If you remember Hezekiah Walker, we got the victory, victory. So that right there kind of gives that bloom, bloom, bloom. So you start putting all these elements together because you can just do it on all these electronics. And I just put two different turnarounds in there. Um, and I had that in church. The crazy thing is, this is the first interview I'm, I'm telling this. I didn't do that. Um, in church, it was when my dad's talking, I was like, and back to the one, right? The problem is I didn't do that bloom, bloom, bloom. I didn't create that part until I got to the studio because it was too dark to do in church. So, you know what I'm saying? Even though you got the we got the victory, but that's the monsters or something, but I just didn't do it in church. So I took that, recorded it, and just put the loop on the piano. So it's basically just the piano. 
I went to South Street, come back, and then it's just like, I'm like, all right, let me do something crazy with a drum beat. So it's like, so I was trying to mix up something that was like bumpy with a slow chord progression. So it was more so like an experimentation. Fast forward, Jill comes in the room and says, oh, I like that, can I write to that? And I'm like, all right, you know, like, I didn't know she would hear something on it. And she wanted the room by herself. And she took her little black and white notebook and she sat in the room, I play Sega Genesis. She comes in the room and says, hey, I want you to listen to this. She hit the button and it's like, bloom, doom, bloom. And she goes, you love me. It's I was like, yo, let's record it. So she goes right in the booth and we did one rundown. And as she was recording it, I was just in Cubase copying and pasting and copying and pasting. So she basically cut it to the same progression going around and around the whole time. And the reason why there's no bridge in the song is because, you know, it was like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so that's when I do the little piano solo and go, doom, 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 doom. And that's it. You know, it was it was nothing else to do to it. So I just built the rest of the stuff around it. And um, the part when she goes, hey, I am my, I'm my, uh, that was a joke. But we recorded it, left it in there. Jazzy Jeff shopped it and it had that on there. And when we got the deal, everybody was going to straighten up their records. And we took that out and they were like, no, put that back in. We were like, y'all serious? It was like, no, that's the best part of the ending. And it was just like, okay. Like we were kind of like, yo, it was really a joke, honestly. When she says in the song, she says, you love me from my hair follicle to my toenails. That's kind of like the part where it's like in Psalms, God knows the very hairs on our head. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's a Jeremiah one. He, he He's like, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew thee. So that, that means that there's a deeper know about the person or in her words, you're expressing. That's how much this dude loves me. Where, where it's like from my hair follicle to my toenails. That means from my weight to the way I look to my skin, you know, my eyes, my hair, you know, the, the hair do. If you love me from my hair follicle to my toenails, then there's nothing wrong with me in your sight because you love me unconditionally. Music is a central part of the spiritual and cultural experience in black churches. And oftentimes, it doesn't have to be a formal song being sung or even played. See, in black churches, organists typically play for the majority of the service, when someone is singing, when the pastor is getting ready to close, or just playing underneath the pastor as they make announcements. It's not a song or anything, just a little background music, a constant hum, or what some might call talk music or nothing music, it's what Keith was doing for his dad. But that background sound, that constant hum you hear in church, it has significance. Ashon Crawley, an author, artist, and professor of religious and African-American studies, wrote about this sound you hear in black churches in his book, Black Pentecostal Breath, The Aesthetics of Possibility. In it, he writes, nothing music is the connective tissue 
the background sound of black church services heard before and after songs, while people are giving weekly announcements, before the preacher tunes up and after the service ends. Ask a musician, what are you playing? And with a coy, shy smile, they will say nothing. In these moments, meaning is made through the inclined air, through the anticipation, the materiality of nothing, the vibratory frequency of black thought, of the more to come that has not yet arrived. And we hear this in the musician's virtuosity. They uphold, they carry, they anticipate through the performance of nothing, but a searching listening. It is not a song, it is not a melody. We might call it improvisation, though that implies a structure upon which he is building. With the playing of nothing music, there is a certain lack of attention, a sort of insouciance with which one plays, a holy nonchalance. Being both fully engaged in the moment while concentration is otherwise than the music. Jill Scott's He Loves Me is but one example of the sound that would become known as neo-soul, an evidence of his spiritual and sonic connections to the black church. The song's been covered by everyone, from Karen Clark Shared and Kiki Shared to Beyonce and Leanne Le Havas. It's a mainstay at open mics and jam sessions across the world, even now, some 21 years later. And to think, it all started as simple talk music an organist backing up the pastor in a small Baptist church in Philadelphia. In the next episode. The five spot, it was this very, very intimate venue. Very intimate. I mean, people were like right here in front of your face. It was this high and people are right here, you know? So it proved to be a master training ground of like, if you could keep your composure, if you could, you know, do your thing with somebody staring at you right here, you know, then you know that you can perform borderline anywhere. And so that's really what it became, a training ground for all of us who were involved, you know, to just develop our craft and really, and also be able to promote ourselves at the time because, you know, it was this little known. And then in the midst of that, that's when you started hearing more about like Neo Soul and this person and that person being added to it. And, and once it gained popularity and like sort of word of mouth spread, then different people started coming through on any given night. You don't know who might be in the audience. This has been The Seeds of Black Lily an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and Black music at the turn of the century. To learn more about this episode, you can visit 808sandjazzbreaks.com. This podcast was written, produced, and edited by me, Stanley Collins. This episode was engineered by Jimmy Goodman of Leopard Studio. Original music by Soul Surplus. And funding for this project was made possible by the Black Music City Grant and Rec Philly. Thanks to Paris Bowens, Keith Pelzer, and Dr. Philip Lamar Cunningham for their contributions. Also, thanks to Eslaku Burhanu and Dr. Diane Turner from the Charles L. Bloxon Afro-American Collection at Temple University. And thank you for listening.
We'll see you next episode.